All right. Thank you, Joey and the worship team. Um, appreciate you guys this morning. We had to kind of reshuffle the deck a little bit this week. Um, typically, uh, my position is over here with a guitar leading in song, and um, this, this time it's a little bit different. And so, uh, um, but that's okay. The Lord has provided us with people with lots of different gifts. And um, so, thank you, brother, for serving this morning. And my name is Levi. Uh, I'm the worship director here. So again, this is not typically the spot that you would find me um, right here on Sunday morning, but occasionally I do end up over here. And I'm happy when I do. I'm happy to get a chance to open up God's Word and um, explore it together and hear from, uh, from the Lord. And so this morning, it's going to be one of those times. So um, pray with me, and then we will, we'll get rolling here. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we desperately need to hear from you. Um, your, your word is food for our souls, God. We are, uh, we are, we are a lost people, God, without any hope. Uh, if it were not for you reaching down to us, uh, through your Son, through the word that you have communicated, the Bible that we hold in our hands, um, if it were not for these things, Lord, we truly would have um, nowhere to turn. And we'd be a very hopeless people. And so, God, we're thankful this morning um, for your word. And we pray that you would um, just make it come alive for us, Jesus, in, in new ways. And, uh, and give us a greater faith and confidence in you because of it, God. And may you be glorified in all of this. And in Jesus' name, amen. Well, everything happens for a reason, right? You've heard that popular phrase. It's usually said when something bad happens to somebody, someone comes along and not quite sure what to say, so you say everything happens for a reason. The sentiment is that it is supposed to communicate some kind of comfort for that person in that situation, and the idea behind that very general phrase, everything happens for a reason, I think, is that God or, or fate or whatever kind of belief you might have will take that bad thing in your life, whatever it is, and intend it for something bigger. So there's kind of this complex um, events, all these events that are happening. That bad thing that happened to you gets plugged in and somehow it turns out good somewhere else down the road. It can be exemplified in this short story from the New York Times that I'll read. It's very short. It goes like this. On April 15th in 2013, <clears throat> James Costello was cheering on a friend near the finish line at the Boston Marathon when the bombs exploded. You guys remember this. Severely burning his arms and legs and sending shrapnel into his flesh. And during the months of surgery and rehabilitation that followed, Mr. Costello developed a relationship with one of his nurses, Krista de Agostino, and soon they became engaged. Mr. Costello then later posted a picture of the ring on Facebook, and he had this line connected to it. He says, I now realize why I was involved in the tragedy. It was to meet my best friend and the love of my life. One could say everything happens for a reason. But the problem with that general statement without it being qualified at all is that most of our suffering that we endure in life doesn't get packaged so neatly, does it? It doesn't get, it doesn't get all packaged up with a, a bow on top or a, a ring on your finger. It's usually a little bit messier than that. 
It's an expression that fails to comfort us when we lose something significant in our lives. Why? Because it's just too vague. It's just too, it's too shallow. It's a philosophy that has no, no grit to it. There's no teeth to it. If you lose a parent before, uh, while they're still young, or your, your marriage falls apart, or you lose a child, God forbid, that, that statement, everything happens for a reason, doesn't really mean much anymore, does it? It's just, it's gone. It loses all its power. So what is a more comforting way? What is a better mindset for us to think about the trials that we endure? What, what's a better thing uh, that's, that offers a little bit more, actually a lot more comfort to us in the real pain and the real suffering and the real trials that we endure in this life? And with that question in mind, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you need a Bible this morning, you can just raise your hand and an usher will grab one for you if your phone battery died or, you know, or your Bible's in the car or something like that, then um, just raise your hand and we'll get you a Bible. We are going to be in the Bible today, so you're going to want one. Not that we're not in the Bible every Sunday, but, uh, but uh, we're going to jump around just a little bit this morning. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians, or you can call it 2 Corinthians in the vernacular of certain politicians. 2 Corinthians would be fine. Um, man, I could say more, but I won't. I don't want to waste time this morning. Um, you know what? Trump could have, or somebody could have, uh, somebody could have impressed a lot of people if he would have said 4 Corinthians or 4 Corinthians because... This is actually the fourth letter that Paul has written to the Corinthians, most likely. You have 1 Corinthians, well, you have a letter that was lost first, and then you have 1 Corinthians that was written, which is the second letter. And then you have what's called the tearful letter, just a title we gave it, that Paul gives it, which would be like 3 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter. So he missed a chance to um, really impress the evangelical camp. And the only reason I bring that up is in 2 Corinthians, because we've got four letters, what you have here is a lot of correspondence between Paul and the Corinthian church. I mean, you have a long, kind of a long history here already. Paul has spent a lot of time in Corinth. Um, he's, he's ministered to these, these people for quite a long time. He planted this church, and um, there's all this correspondence. And when we go into the text today, there's really just two things. I narrowed it down to two things contextually that are very helpful for us when we look at this passage today. Uh, one thing is that Paul's relationship with the church is very strained right now. Things are difficult with the church. The church in Corinth has, has started to separate themselves a little bit from Paul because of the nature of Paul's ministry, which is very much wrapped up in suffering and in weakness. And they're looking at Paul as their leader, as their pastor, and they're saying, we're not sure God is with this guy anymore. I mean, look at him. He's weak. He suffers. He's not living his best life now. Maybe we need to distance ourselves from this guy a little bit. So Paul is writing 2 Corinthians in part, at least to say, at least to try to like repair this relationship. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that there's uh, the, the, these people that are called uh, super apostles later in, uh, in 2 Corinthians. Paul calls them super apostles. And they've kind of moved in into Corinth and they've capitalized on this rift between Paul and, and the church in Corinth. And they have come in from Jerusalem most likely and they're, 
They're very well-educated people. They are uh, extremely persuasive. They're very talented in their, in their, uh, in their, in their speaking, um, in the art of persuasion. They, they have this Jewish lineage that they're evidently touting quite a bit. And they've come in. They've recognized Paul's not around all the time. And there's this rift here, and they've kind of capitalized it. And at the heart of their attack is really the belief that God does not use or God does not exalt himself in human weakness. No, because God is strong, so his leaders should be strong. God is powerful, so his leaders should look powerful. That's how you know God is with a person. Maybe God was with Paul early on when he planted the church, but clearly he's not anymore. Let's move on. So this is kind of contextually, this is what's happening in Corinth at the time. And of course, Paul's theology of weakness and suffering is way different than that. And we'll get a little bit of a glimpse of it today. Uh, so, you're there now, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 7. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is unshaken. And we know that you, as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. What's better than everything happens for a reason? First point is just to praise God in your trials because he's the God of all comfort. Praise God in your trials because he is the source of all your comfort. The text says again, blessed be the God. Or it could be translated, praise be the God. Kind of the same word, can go different ways there. Praise be to the God. But which God? The Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort. This is just a standard kind of Jewish phrase. Typically how it goes is praise be to God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's meant to really exalt the God of the Old Testament. And Paul is grabbing it, Christianizing it in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus. He's plugging Jesus into it. But what he's doing is he's connecting Old Testament God to their life right then. So things like in the Old Testament we see Psalm 34 where God is near the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. He's the God who sees the afflictions of his people and delivers them out of them all. In Psalm 103, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are but dust. Old Testament God. Think about this. The God who holds the world in his hands, right? And governs over all of creation in sovereignty and keeps everything going by his sustaining power has compassion for his people at the same time. He's not so high and mighty and busy with bigger things that he doesn't know each one of us right here in this room and exactly what hurts us, exactly what kind of pains we might uh, be walking in, all, all the fears that we deal with on a regular basis. He's very aware of all of that stuff. He is the God who comforts. He's not cruel and detached. 
He didn't create human beings just to do his work and then he steps on them when they mess up. That's not the God of the Old Testament. It's not the God of the New Testament. And then when Paul mentions Jesus, we're reminded that the God of the Old Testament, back here, Psalm 34, Psalm 103, that God became flesh in Christ. And he lived with us under the curse, feeling all the things that we feel, feeling all the weaknesses that we feel, feeling all those, just all the weightiness that we have in life under the curse. And he was never obligated to, to do this. We didn't unionize and come to him and tell him, hey, you know, you owe us this now. I don't know a lot about unions, so I'm not going to talk a lot about it. But, but we didn't do anything to earn it, right? Romans talks about how that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came willingly. I think a, a significant thing, one thing that's significant here that Paul's doing in the beginning of this letter is he's starting it a little different than he starts other letters. Typically, he starts a letter with thanks, thanks uh, be to God for the, the work that he's doing with the people. So typically, like in 1 Corinthians, he says, I give thanks to my God always because of the grace of God that was given to you. In Christ Jesus. In Philippians, he says the same kind of thing. He says, I thank God in my remembrance of you. Colossians, it's the same kind, of, same kind of greeting. Here, he doesn't thank God for the Corinthians and for the gospel work in the Corinthians. He just praises God because God is the God of all comfort. And it wouldn't have gone unnoticed to the Corinthians. I'm not sure that they would be offended. I don't think it was horribly uncommon. But it wouldn't have gone unnoticed that, like, Paul's getting right into something here. He's, not, he's got something to say. There's a sense of urgency. And the urgency is that the Corinthians are in danger of walking away from the gospel because they do not want to have anything to do with the suffering that comes with, being, with uh, connecting yourself to the gospel of Jesus. They're shifting away from Paul, but more fundamentally, they may be shifting away from the gospel. So Paul is getting right to it. And just to clarify... Gospel, you can go back two pages in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. There's the gospel right here in very simple language. Paul says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. How did he die? He died suffering greatly, being beaten, being humiliated, being mocked and shamed, put on a cross. You can't separate these things from the gospel. You can't separate it at all. It's in Jesus right in the beginning. Uh, verse 4, he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, um, who is Peter. And then to the twelve. And then he goes on and appears to 500 more. This is the gospel that was preached to them. This is the gospel that is now on the line with the Corinthians. It might recall for us the parable of the sower that Jesus talks about in well, one of the places is Mark chapter 4, right? Where, where Jesus is telling the story about the, the, the farmer who goes along with the seed and he's scattering seed. And uh, some of the seed falls on a soil that's kind of rocky. And, this, and the, the wheat sprouts up right away. But because the soil is rocky, there's not, men, not much of a root system in there. And as soon as the sun comes up, what happens? It, it scorches and kills that little wheat. And Jesus goes on and explains to his disciples later that that represents those who hear the gospel and they say, yes, I want, I, I want that. I got my faith. I'm putting my faith in that. And then as soon as it's a, at the first sign of any kind of persecution or discomfort in any way that comes on account of that gospel, it's like, oh, well, 
that was just a phase. You know? I was just dabbling in some of that stuff. And, and people back away from it. There's no roots there. And Paul is just concerned about the roots of his church. He wants to know, he wants to get right at the problem. And imp- implicit in this benediction of God's comfort, he's, he's calling the Corinthians to, to, to praise God too. Can you say, blessed be the God of comfort as well? Will you join me in this praise of God? He's, he's doing something by talking about comfort right away. So, what is comfort? Begs the question. I think it's easy to read these verses and assume we know what comfort is. Um, but it's a, it's a word that can mean a lot of things, really. <clears throat> uh, for me, sometimes comfort really just means me walking around in my stretchy pants all day <laughs> and just eating lots of junk food and giving no concern to what might become of it. Is that comfort? Is it comfort to go over to a friend's house, somebody of yours who's going through a tough time and bring five pounds of buffalo wings and an old Stallone movie and say, I'm going to comfort you. We're going to sit and we're going we're to do this together or a gallon of ice cream and a chick flick or whatever it might be. Fill it in. Is that, is that comfort? Is that, does that capture the whole idea of what comfort is? No, not really. Not that that can't be done in love and I certainly appreciate anybody who brings me buffalo wings <laughs> in love. And, but... That would, be, that would be a little bit thin, wouldn't it? That would be just kind of falling short. That's more like I'm consoling you. I'm just going to be with you and we'll just kind of get through this little patch for a few hours. But Paul means much more than comfort. There's something distinctive about the way Christians can comfort each other. That word means something more to us, something different to us than it does to someone who has no faith in Christ. Because everybody in the whole world knows something about comfort. You can do something. It's instinctive in us to, to, do, to help, to come alongside someone who's suffering in some way. But the gospel fills out comfort in a different way for us. And for that, we need a little bit of background to get a sense of what Paul might be talking about. Um, in my study in the Word, this was, this was a, of, of the word comfort. This is the way I would describe it. Comfort is the idea of a person being with another person, speaking a words of life that will serve to change that person's mood in some way and give them courage and new hope, new direction, new insight to help them face the day and then face the next day and then face the next day. It's being with someone, speaking words of life, helping them see things differently. And when Paul does mention the word comfort, he is almost certainly thinking about the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 55, that whole section in there is all about comfort. If you went into 2 Corinthians and you just studied 2 Corinthians for a while, you would start to think, man, Paul has been doing his devotions in Isaiah for a long time because it shows up all over the place in 2 Corinthians. If you go back to Isaiah, um, flip over there, to Isaiah chapter 40, we can get a sense of what comfort meant for Paul and what it means for us, really. <clears throat> Isaiah 40. 
starting in verse 1. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned and she has received from the Lord, Lord's hand double for all her sins. So at this point in Isaiah, Israel is living in exile. That's the picture. They're living in exile because of their sin. They are, they are, they are uh, not their own people. And they're looking forward to the day when God will deliver them, bring, bring them back to their land, and he will dwell with them once again. They're looking forward to this day. And Isaiah 40 is when that kind of shifts and that word of comfort starts to come. Jump down a few verses to verse 9. He says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, O herald of good news. That's gospel, same word. O herald of gospel, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of gospel. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah. And here it is, here's the content of our, of our comfort. Behold your God, behold the Lord comes with his might, and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him. And his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those who are young. These verses, like so much of this section of Isaiah, just looks forward to the time when the Messiah will come. And they're just filled with lots and lots of encouragement. Here's a few more just from, four, just from chapter 40. Words of comfort. God's word stands forever. It's not shaken and never fades. God comes with unmatched strength. And he knows everything there is to know. He's the creator. Oh, sorry. He's the creator and he knows everything there is to know. He sits on his throne and no one can remove him. He never gets weak. He's never confused. His eyes are always on his people. He gives strength to those who are weak. He has compassion on the afflicted. His salvation extends beyond the borders of Israel, even to the Gentiles. This, what we call messianic age, was something they were looking forward to. And Paul, by grabbing the word comfort and indicating he's talking about Isaiah, he's saying, we are living in the age, Corinthians, we're living in this age right now, CRC, where salvation, the salvation that we've looked forward to for so long is now here. It's here in Jesus. He has come. He has rescued us. He has defeated every power of darkness, including death itself, so that the God of all comfort can comfort us. And that comfort is in Jesus, ultimately. So this should begin to stir up the Corinthians. It should begin to stir us up as we think about the God of comfort who promises to come and comfort us. Not promises to take away our suffering or make sure we don't go through any suffering, but that he comforts us in our suffering. I think our natural tendency is to, is just the default for us is to think that God will protect us from all harm. And we pray for that. We hope for that. I mean, we know in our brains that that's, that's not true. I, anything can happen to me. I know that. But we don't tend to really think that way very long. And I don't necessarily know that we should walk around thinking all the time about all the bad things that could happen to us. I think we should be optimistic, hopeful people. But our instinct is to just think that nothing bad will really ever happen to us. But as followers of Jesus, man, our hope does not, and our optimism cannot rest 
in our circumstances because we know those circumstances will change. We know what seems like could never happen could actually happen. And if that ever happens or when that happens, we want to make sure that our hope is ultimately in the God who comforts us in every situation where we need comfort. So we praise God in our trials because he is the God of comfort. We can praise him because he comforts us. Number two, we praise God in our trials because his gospel advances through us to others in our trials. Praise God in our trials because his gospel advances through you to other people. Look again at the text here. Flip back over to 2 Corinthians if you're still sitting in Isaiah there. Um, back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> the second half of verse 4 says, So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, well, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. And you can skip down to verse 7. It just says, We know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. Notice all this communal language. Comfort does not end with you. It doesn't terminate with you. That's not the, that's not where it goes. That's not the end of it. It moves through you to other people. Remember I had a conversation. It was quite a while ago now. It was probably 15 years or go or so. I was in my early 20s. And uh, I had a conversation with two friends of mine. We were in a car for several hours. And we got to talking theology and talking about the sovereignty of God. And <clears throat> in our early 20s, there was just a wealth of wisdom being thrown around in that car. Um, <laughs> Wish we could have recorded it, but I do remember one little bit. I remember one of the uh, one of my friends talked about this uh, this this breakup that she had with her boyfriend a couple years prior to that, and just trying to think theologically, she said in a very annoyed tone, "Is the reason I went through that whole relationship and broke up with him and all that stuff simply so that I could understand when someone else goes through a breakup?" And I. I didn't know what to say. I, I, I kind of knew the guy that she was talking about, so I couldn't say much. But, um, but I didn't really know exactly what to say anyway. I'm like, well, no, that doesn't sound right. I, I, you know, we ponder that and change the subject. But looking at it now, I would say, well, <laughs> that's a very short sighted It's a me-focused view of your suffering. It, it doesn't end with you. That's not the point. It's not just simply so that you can understand other people that are out there suffering. That wouldn't really help anybody a whole lot. One reason we suffer is so that we can pass along the comfort that we receive from the gospel, that we receive from God's word, that we receive from other people to that person. So that person, whatever the situation is, and it can be something as simple as, as, as I, I broke up with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, you know, and, and that, that therein lies an opportunity for you to come alongside someone else and say, well, let me speak some words of life where you see nothing but death right now. There is life here through this. And this is how, this is the gospel at work in our lives. We comfort one another with the gospel that has comforted 
us. It flows through us. One commentator simply put it this way. He said, comfort is the gospel at work. Comfort is simply the gospel at work. So when Paul talks about comforting here, he's talking from his own experience. He's talking historically and he's talking theologically at the same time. He's experienced comforting comfort this way from Titus. If you flip over your, in your Bible, maybe one page, to chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, you see in verse 5 that Paul mentions Titus. He says in verse 5, Even when I came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me. So that I rejoice still even more. Jump down to verse 13. He says, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been been refreshed by all of you. The Corinthians comforted Titus, who moves along and finds Paul, who is anxious and nervous and wondering what's going on. He takes that comfort and passes it on to Paul. And the result is that the relationship between Titus and, the, and Paul and the Corinthian church is that it's strengthened. There's a strength that comes as they comforted one another. Verse 15 Go down just a little further. Verse 15 in chapter 7. His affection, Paul says, talking about Titus still, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. His, His affections for them increased because of this comfort. And they were together more unified because of the comfort that they shared with one another. And when I hear the word unity, the church being unified, I, a lot of times I just think right away, John 17, Jesus praying for his church. Was he praying John 17, verse 21? He says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And this oneness doesn't just come naturally, does it? I mean, we don't just automatically become... A, unified people. I mean, we pray for it. I think we pray for it a lot here at, at CRC, and we see a lot of unity, and it's just, a, just a, such a blessing to see, but it doesn't just come real naturally. Things bring us together, and one of the things that brings us together is tragedy and comfort. They come together, and that, and that unity is strengthened. That single-mindedness is strengthened, but it still doesn't just end there. Unity doesn't just end with us saying, wow, we're all unified. This is great. Because Jesus continues the end of his prayer for, in that verse 21 of John 17. He says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's, there's a missional edge to our comfort and our unity. The world comes and looks and they see the church doing church well, loving each other well, comforting each other well. They can't help but see the gospel on display, on full display. Our oneness is just often forged in the fires of suffering. But 
That's not a bad thing when it comes to mission. God can take that kind of unity that comes out of suffering and advance his gospel to a broken world through us. So, comfort, unity, and mission coming together right there. But lastly, how do we comfort each other? How? How do we comfort with the comfort that we've received from Christ? How do we make sure it's not just a pat on the back? Just another plate of buffalo wings. How do we make sure it's more than that? What's, what's, what has to happen in order for comfort that we're talking about here, this kind of comfort, to really happen? I think what needs to happen is that we need to let the gospel go deep in us. It has to go deep in us. It can't be a shallow thing. And that's number three. We can praise God in our trials because his gospel advances in us. Praise God in our trials because his gospel advances in us. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about a, an illustration that I think is helpful. He talks about the, the tool shed. Maybe you've seen this essay, the, the tool shed. He walks into a tool shed and inside the tool shed he notices that a beam of light has kind of come in through, one of, through a little hole in the roof. And he approaches the beam of light and he sees the beam kind of coming across in the dark tool shed and he notices there's dust, you know, floating around. And he sees the length of the beam and sees kind of what it's shining on. And there's all kinds of things that he can observe in this dark tool shed about this beam of light that is coming through. But then he talks about changing his perspective from being an objective observer of the beam to then coming into the beam and looking down the same line as the beam and as he looks down the line of the beam he sees not the tool shed he doesn't see dust he doesn't see anything like that he sees trees and he see he sees leaves kind of blowing around in the wind and he sees blue sky and he sees sunlight and he completely different picture when he steps into the beam and the point that he's making is that we see things much differently when we experience them than when we just stand on the outside and look at them. And if, man, if your habit is at all like mine when it comes to any threat to my comfort, I prefer to observe things as much as possible. I don't want to step into anything that will make me uncomfortable. I don't want to step into anything that, that makes me vulnerable or appear weak in any way. I would rather stay in the observant mode. I will look at the beam. I will look at God's word. I will talk about, man, God comforts his people. God, God does all sorts of, look at all this stuff. But I will resist stepping into the beam. And many of us will resist stepping into the experience where you need to be comforted now. You've stepped out in weakness. You've given of yourself in some way, and now you've been hurt in some way. And what do you do? We resist this. It's, it's natural. I don't think it's right or good, but it's natural. I think we, we can all feel it. Um, deep down, I think we just struggle with, man, God might not be good enough. I know he's good, but he might not be good enough, you know. But 2 Corinthians talks about how it gives us, the, assures us that the greater the suffering, the greater the comfort. Or as Paul says later on, when I am weak, then I am strong. Where he talks about how God's grace is sufficient. 
in his weakness. In our obedience to Christ, we have to be able to endure suffering. Personally, we have to experience it ourselves. We've got to be willing to walk in that ourselves. And I think that's the reason Paul can preach so passionately and he can comfort so well is because that he experiences it all the time. His weakness has always been on display. All through the New Testament, it seems like he's either hungry, tired, beat up, sore, backstabbed. I mean, he lives in this world where he needs comfort all the time. But he gives comfort all the time. It's an example for us to look at him and say, man, if God's grace was sufficient for Paul, it's the same grace for you and me today. It will be sufficient for us as well. At this point, you might think, <clears throat> this is what I thought, what about the comfort that, doesn't, that I don't choose? It's not, it's not up to having a choice of whether I do this or do that. There's some suffering that just comes because I live in a fallen world. I just endure suffering of, of all sorts. Does 2 Corinthians chapter, does this apply to just any suffering? Or is it only the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about where he goes out and seems to get beat up every time he talks about Jesus? I think it's a good question. It's one that has tripped me up a lot of times. It kind of gets me, it sort of makes me stop and wonder how applicable some of this stuff is. And I, I, but I came across, um, I came across, I was assigned a book to read. Uh, uh, and in the final chapter of Desiring God, um, there was, there, there's a whole chapter on suffering. And I can't recommend it strongly enough because he deals with this question about these two different kinds of suffering that are, seem categorically different. And, and we wonder, like, do I take the promises of Paul here or do I not? Or, like, what do I do with this? And, and Piper just handles it very, very well. He says this. I'll give you the, the short version. He says, All suffering that comes in the path of obedience is suffering with Christ and for Christ, whether it is cancer or conflict. We may pray like Paul that it will be removed, but if it's God's will that we walk in it, well, then we embrace it to the end as part of the cost of discipleship and the path of obedience on the way to heaven. A little further down, he says, a reason not to distinguish too sharply between sickness, uh, between persecution and sickness is because the pain from the two are not always distinguishable. Paul didn't distinguish between being beaten beaten with rods and having a boating accident or being cold while traveling. It all falls under the cost of discipleship. What turns suffering into suffering with and for Christ is not how intentional our enemies are, but how faithful we are. If we are Christ, then what befalls us is for his glory. It's for our good, whether it is caused by enzymes or enemies. I love this explanation because it comes down to obedience to Christ. As you obey Christ, it is suffering for Christ. And so you can be comforted. We can be comforted in every situation. Enzymes or enemies. We can be comforted by God. It's clear in Paul's life that he experienced it this way. This idea of experiencing uh, suffering um, he talks about it a little bit further in verse 8. 2 Corinthians 1, 8. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, 
of our affliction that we experienced in Asia. We were utterly burdened beyond our strength, and we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What happens there for Paul? Paul believed in the resurrection before this experience. He saw the risen Jesus. He already knew about him. He had already written to the Corinthians about the risen Jesus. But when he experiences affliction beyond what he could bear, death was right in his face. I don't think he's exaggerating. I think he really did feel like and thought, this is it. This is the end of my life. I have hours or maybe a day left, and then I'm done. And what comes into complete focus for him right then? What becomes so clear? The resurrection does. When we suffer, things become more clear and more important to us than if we don't suffer. It's easy to say, talk about resurrection. It's easy just to kind of, it's an idea out there somewhere when things are going very, very well in life. Um, it's, it's very different when you're looking at your last hours. Suddenly, oh my goodness, all I have my whole hope, everything comes down to this. That Jesus was raised from the dead. I think Paul got this in a very deep way. And this is what happens with us. It goes deeper. When we come to the end of ourselves, when we're so desperate for anything, we just need something to hold on to. What is that thing? And I would say the gospel becomes that much greater to you. That much greater to me. There's a little nugget embedded in this little bit that Paul just talks about with his suffering. It's worth at least noting, although I can't go into it this morning. But it's that suffering and obedience to Christ, what did it do for Paul? It freed him up from relying on himself. He suddenly was freed up. Isn't that what he says? He says, uh, it made us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. Man, when I think of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, that kind of stuff, I just think that's the default setting for us all the time is self-reliance. We fall back into it constantly. I can do things on my, on my own, in my own giftedness, in my own strength. We do the, and we do this all the time when it comes to taking any kind of risk, any kind of risk really, but especially even for the gospel, for Jesus' sake, we do the calculated risk. We figure out, okay, my giftedness versus what this kind of thing that I might serve in would call me to. And we calculate whether or not we'll do something based on really our skill and our self-reliance. And not, not all of that is bad, obviously. We want to be serving in ways that make sense, that fit us. But I think we're kind of overboard on that to where we, we really do rely on ourselves all the time. We default to it. All the time. If you don't think so, you just all you got to do is ask yourself a few questions. How's your prayer life? How much do you really pray? How how often do you pray? How well do you pray? If it's not a lot, if it's if it's definitely like wow, that's I never feel like I'm doing very well with prayer. It's it's because there's there's self sufficiency still in there. You can ask yourself, when's the last time I confessed sin? to anybody, not just generally sin, but like specific sin that I'm struggling with 
if it's been a long, long time, then my guess is there's some self-sufficiency in there and you just don't want anybody to know that you struggle with anything. And you hang on to that as hard as you can and, and for as long as you can. There's self-sufficiency in there. <clears throat> or maybe you could even just say when's the last time you were, you were truly vulnerable and self-sacrificial in your relationships with someone, not for yourself, not for you, but just for the gospel, just for, the, for, just for Jesus' sake in that person. When's the last time you were all in, completely 100%, might get hurt in the process, might get rejected in some way. We default to self-sufficiency, but suffering, because of its nature, frees us up from all of that. We realize, I, I'm weak. I suffer. What can I do? I'm not, that, I'm not as self-sufficient as I wish I was. I'm not as skilled as I think I am. And we see, hopefully, in that, as that fades away, we just see it with more clarity the risen and reigning Jesus Christ, and that becomes, he becomes our sufficiency to serve, to give ourselves, to, to do whatever the Lord, whatever God might call us to do. That becomes, he is my sufficiency, not me. That clarity comes in the midst of trials, and that's one of the reasons we can celebrate in our trials, as the gospel goes deeper in us. So let the gospel go deeper in you, whether you're currently in a trial coming out of one or going into one soon, wherever you are on that sort of uh, rotation that we are, because we're always one of those three, um, let the gospel go deep into you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, um, man, I just think about all, everybody here, in this room, God, and I just know that people, uh, that your, your people do suffer and your people do walk through trials and, and they are very deep and they are very, um, very, very, very difficult. They can be very, very lonely. And, uh, and God, I, I pray that they would feel your comfort in such a deep way, Lord. I pray that the gospel the truth of the gospel would be the hope that they cling to. I pray, God, that, um, that you would even clarify more about how the gospel meets us in our weakness and meets us in our trials, meets us in our suffering, and produces a fruit that uh, could never otherwise be produced. Um, help us to be people who comfort each other well, to receive comfort, give comfort, Lord, and, um, and protect us from trying to find comfort anywhere else but you. And uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.